Welcome to Puzzling It Out, Thoughts and Perspectives from a Clinical Psychologist. Hello, my name is Dr. Gail Lewis, and I'm a clinical psychologist practicing on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. My aim is to use this forum to present to you some of the work that I do with patients, discussing many points of interest that arise during sessions, after sessions, during conversations with colleagues about clinical work, and sometimes about personal experiences that intersect with my clinical work. Some of the areas I'll be centering on, but not limiting myself to, are areas of specialty I focus on in my practice, such as eating disorders, trauma, addictions, multiple sclerosis, and psychoanalysis. I'm very much looking forward to starting this new venue journey with you. I hope that you learned something from it, and of course, that you enjoy it. For my first podcast episode, I'm going to talk about what it means to work psychoanalytically. And I'm going to begin by giving you a little background that explains some of the factors that led me to where I am in my private practice now. When I first went to graduate school, we were asked what orientation we wanted to focus our studies on. And our choices were psychodynamic or cognitive behavioral. Now, all of my new classmates seemed to raise their hands immediately and seemed to definitively and assertively state what orientation they were planning on pursuing. Yet when it came time for me to answer, I had no answer. I had absolutely no idea. I never thought about it. I started at this graduate school program to become a child psychologist. That was it. That was all I had considered which made me think I was starting off graduate school totally screwed. When it was explained to me that psychodynamic work was basically psychoanalytic thinking with more flexibility in thought and process, all I heard was psychoanalytic and I immediately thought of Freud. I knew I didn't want to be like Freud or what I knew of him at that time, which basically was nothing. What I knew was based on what we call secondary source readings, meaning not Freud's actual readings and papers and books, but other people's perspectives and thoughts and interpretations of his work. And what I learned from all of those things were not very impressive to me at the time. At the same time, I didn't really know that much about cognitive behavioral work either. So because our graduate school gave us the option, I was able to try both orientations to see which fit better. And I thought for sure I would end up practicing from a cognitive behavioral point of view, simply because it wasn't Freudian. But the more experience I had, both working with patients and being supervised by very seasoned psychologists, the more I came to realize that cognitive behavioral treatment was not for me, and that I was more comfortable thinking and working psychodynamically. What does that mean? Not intending to do a disservice to either way of working, though I fear I might inadvertently because there is no way that I could possibly begin to cover all elements of both ways of working. But for the purpose of keeping your attention and trying to be as concise as possible, I will try to explain some basic differences between the two orientations. But I want to clarify something first before I go into some detail. When you think of cognitive behavioral treatment, consider it to be a large umbrella of theory and practice with some basic premises that 
underlie all of the different subsidiary schools and thought processes and practices that fall under that umbrella. And there are many different schools of thought and practice under cognitive behavioral therapy. And the same holds true under the umbrella of psychoanalytic psychotherapy. There are many different schools of thought. There are many different ways of practicing. And there, as in cognitive behavioral therapy, in psychoanalytic psychotherapy, there are some basic premises that underlie all of these. And I, I won't be able to go into the various schools of thought and practice, but of course you can go online and, and do a thorough research on any or all of these that might interest you. To start with cognitive behavioral treatment, it's considered more focused on the here and now, addressing thoughts and feelings as they are happening and providing immediate solutions for immediate problems. It's particularly well suited, for example, for help with phobias, teaching gradual ways to conquer what is considered an irrational fear about something. And there are definitely other very effective cognitive behavioral treatments that research has shown to be very useful in eating disorder treatment, in treating OCD, uh, ADHD, and many other of the diagnostic categories that one can find in the DSM. One of the techniques that's used in cognitive behavioral therapy to deal with phobias is something called systematic desensitization. And basically what it is, it's a systemized, very orderly and thought through way of working through a particular fear that is considered to be irrational, accompanied by irrational thoughts. And desensitization is meant to diminish the felt anxiety or fear that might be associated with that particular phobia. And a very common phobia that people have is a fear of flying. So systematic desensitization can be very effective in helping a person who is afraid of flying get from a point of being able to talk about their fear of flying to not feel the kind of anxiety that they might initially feel once they start talking about it to being able to gradually get to the point of being on an airplane and being able to fly somewhere. And the goal, I don't believe, and certainly someone might correct me on this, I don't believe the goal is to diminish the anxiety that is felt entirely. I think it's through this process of systematic desensitization, the cognitive behavioral therapist works with the patient, supplying them with different tools and skills to be able to more adequately manage the irrational thoughts and the associated debilitating feelings that accompany it. So that if those feelings and thoughts come up, for example, once a person gets on an airplane, then the patient has adequate tools and skills to be able to deal with it. Now psychodynamic or psychoanalytic treatment, while also addressing what is happening in the here and now, additionally explores one's past 
and how one's history relates to the current and ongoing conflicts. In this case, how one's history relates to the way one is dealing with that phobia. And it addresses why it is that that person might be maintaining a particular way of dealing with something due to old behavior that might no longer be relevant to current circumstances. And it's about bringing what is unconscious to the conscious plane. And this is a very seminal aspect of psychoanalytic treatment. It's about trying to tap into more of the compulsive ways that we react to situations that at an earlier time might have been necessary and useful, but currently are no longer effective or relevant to what it is that we're dealing with. Let's go to the phobia for a second. If a very young child learns to cope in a particular way to get their needs met by their parents, by their primary caregivers, that coping tool of getting those needs met might not be relevant to helping the person deal with her phobia. So identifying those old ways of behaving and what maintains the attachment to those old ways of behaving and also working together, therapist and patient, to come up with new coping skills and even to build upon some of the coping skills that actually might be constructive and might be useful is something that can be done to help a person be in the here and now, feel stronger dealing with whatever phobia or anxiety is plaguing them so that they can find a way to deal with it. Another thing that is looked at is why someone might be invested in not letting go of these old ways of dealing with things, looking at how useful it would be to find more constructive ways of dealing with something, and looking at the challenges of dealing with that investment and trying to incorporate new ways of managing. I want to emphasize that when I say why a person is invested in something, I don't mean that one is consciously invested in continuing old ways of coping, especially if it is determined that those old ways of coping, A, are no longer working, B, are destructive to the person, and C, are immobilizing the person. Typically, people are not going to consciously choose to maintain that kind of behavioral pattern. The investment that I speak of is more of an unconscious investment that, going back to the small child who learns coping skills in order to be able to get his or her needs met, those skills get internalized and they become part of the fabric of one's internal world according to psychoanalytic theory. And that internal fabric is pretty sturdy. So that's where the investment lies. And that fabric can definitely um, 
get unraveled. You know, a thread can get pulled and it can get unraveled, but it takes time. And it requires being gentle and it requires being open to the slow process that it might take because that investment might be quite strong. Now I do agree that working immediately with immediate problems as is often the focus in cognitive behavioral therapy can feel very relieving. I do find that unless you understand how that phobia for example started and why it continues the immediate solutions provided can be more of a band-aid on what likely is more of a deep infection. And band-aids ultimately fall off and stop protecting the infection. Now the wound on the outside might seem to heal, but if the infection is located deep beneath the surface, it will likely fester. It's kind of like filling a cavity when it's more of a root canal issue. Perhaps all of that is unfair for me to say in my metaphor. When it comes down to it, yes, of course, people want symptom relief. No doubt in my mind that's true. There's an old joke in the therapy community about a patient coming into your office saying, I want to feel better, but I don't want to change. Not quite a ha-ha kind of joke, more of an irony joke. So it may be a joke, per se, but it's largely true. In my experience, people do not really want to change. They just want to figure out how to do things in a way to get them what they want in life, preferably via some version of the way they've always been attaining desired effects. But for things to be different in a person's life, change does need to happen. And I don't believe true change occurs simply by addressing the symptoms of discomfort. Let's go back to the airplane phobia for a moment. I mentioned the cognitive behavioral technique of systematic sensitization earlier, and I do believe that it is a very good tool for addressing this problem. However, what if the phobia began when the phobic person was sexually assaulted while on a flight going wherever it was going. I don't believe that only addressing the phobic symptoms of anxiety and irrational thoughts is going to do the trick. Even if the phobic person learns to visualize calm, non-traumatic, realistic scenarios in order to take a seat on the plane, if the sexual assault is not acknowledged and worked through in a thorough manner, as can be done in psychoanalytic verbal psychotherapy, with someone trained to work with trauma, no symptom relief is gonna take away the plane's association with having been sexually assaulted. I do think, however, that both techniques of systematic desensitization and the work that I just described in working through trauma together can be used to arrive at a more long-lasting effect. There are many trauma therapists that approach trauma doing short-term work with specific techniques they feel can, in a very limited amount of time, thoroughly work through a traumatic experience, no matter what the experience had been. And I take strong issue with this. There are also people who call themselves therapists 
as anybody can do, regardless of education and training, or life coaches who take on very serious struggles and whittle treatment down to linear behavioral strategies for better functioning. We as humans are complicated. We are not simple. Yes, sometimes a straight line, of course, is the best way to get where you're going. I cannot deny that claim. But I don't believe that simply deciding to no longer feel a certain way or implementing certain tools that are told to you in a few sessions, you will actually stop feeling that way. I believe that to change things in one's life, making different decisions is a vital aspect of the process, but I do not believe that it's a seminal answer for transformation, self-awareness, and working through, not working over or under or bypassing a problem. Yet, not everybody is looking for self-transformation and self-awareness and working through. That is very true. People who come to me are more likely to be looking for those things. But not everybody wants to do that. And I respect that. And there are many therapists all over the world who would be able to help a person that doesn't have such aims for their treatment. But when you're working with someone who works psychoanalytically, because of the kind of work that is done, even if you're initially looking for some kind of symptom relief, through the technique of psychoanalytic psychotherapy, it's more than likely that you're gonna become aware of things about yourself that you before had not recognized might have even been there. So with all that, why do I advocate for the kind of therapy I offer in my office? Plainly, because I know it works. I've witnessed and participated in the process of psychoanalytic treatment, providing a productive space for real change. And I'm not just speaking as a clinician. I am also speaking as a patient. I know what it's like to be in a room with a patient who is very reluctant to look at things about him or herself that are painful, that feel ugly, that bring up feelings of shame, that have emerged things that should never be spoken, shared, or acknowledged because of obvious or covert messages that were communicated. And I am someone who has gone through that in my own work. I know it feels awful to see parts of yourself that have been hidden, that are loaded with shame, and that are meant to be kept secret, either by conscious or unconscious decision. And to speak about them and realize that you have to own all of those parts of yourself in order to move more freely in your life, which I believe is necessary, is a very hard thing to do. It's painful. It can take a long time. And it can cost a lot, both emotionally and financially. Which is why most people don't engage in this kind of therapy. I just focused on the things that can be difficult when it comes to psychoanalytic psychotherapy. Let me touch upon some of the things that can feel rewarding and leave 
somebody feeling as if going through the process is totally worth it. By speaking the way that you are encouraged to speak in psychoanalytic psychotherapy, by free associating, which means being encouraged to say whatever comes to mind, however nonsensical, however strange, however nonlinear it might seem to be, and uncomfortable, because we tend to be linear thinkers, we tend to be goal-directed in the way that we construct our thoughts, and to be asked to say something that comes to mind that might not make sense in the context of what we're already discussing can feel very uncomfortable. But by doing so, matters of your unconscious world are becoming conscious and it can be quite illuminating in being able to talk about these things and discover parts of yourself that have not been of present mind for you. So by being able to do this free associative work, you get to hear yourself and notice how you think and how you say things in the presence of another person bearing witness to you, which can be incredibly valuable. And it's a rare experience to be able to have that opportunity. I mean, most of the time when you're speaking to somebody, you're, they're not truly listening. They might be listening. Um, I don't want to discredit those good listeners out there. But typically conversations are one person shares, the other person might acknowledge what that person says, and then we'll share something that comes to mind for them about what they just heard. You know, it's, it could be a reciprocal back and forth, but that's not what occurs when you're dealing with a psychoanalytic psychotherapist who just sits there and listens and observes and takes in what you're saying. And that's an incredibly unique and special opportunity. And as I said a moment ago, it's an opportunity where you get to also listen to yourself, which is very different than listening to the dialogue that you have internally. We all have conversations in our head and we all try to find ways to work through problems without having to say them out loud. But as many of you have found, I am sure, not necessarily in a psychoanalytic psychotherapy context, that if you say things out loud, you hear them and process them very differently than when you're saying things internally. So you have an opportunity in a psychoanalytic psychotherapist's office to be able to reprocess some of these things that you only have had our internal dialogues about, both in your presence and your external presence and also in the presence of a psychologist. And it can be a very illuminating and powerful experience for somebody. So 
what's involved in being a patient in psychoanalytic psychotherapy with me? To note, this is going to be a Reader's Digest version. Otherwise, I'd be talking for hours and I'd for sure lose the attention of all of you. So if there's more that you'd like to know about my practice and how I work, and if you even might be interested in setting up an appointment to meet, please take a look at my website for more information. It's at drgaillewis.com and my phone number for my office is on there as well as my email address. So if you have any questions, or if you'd like to have a short dialogue on the phone, please don't hesitate to make sure that I get your message either via email or via phone. That's my very small sales pitch. Now back to what you can expect coming to therapy with me. So what's going to happen initially is that you would leave a message on my voicemail and let me know that you're seeking out therapy. You might say why you're seeking out therapy. You might not. You might just say that you'd like to talk about making an appointment, that you were referred by such and such a person, and then we set up a time to talk on the phone. And I think one of the more important things, probably the most important thing, is that on the phone when we have a, a short conversation, there's an acknowledgement on your end that you're struggling with something. And based on what probably is a 10 to 15 minute phone call, you'll tell me some information about what's going on with you and I'll ask some more detailed questions. And if I find that what you are describing to me is within the wheelhouse of what I do believe I can be of help with, we would set up an appointment to meet. And in the first couple of sessions, which are called a consultation or an intake assessment, and it, it could take between one and three sessions. In many ways, it's about assessing. And it's about you assessing me and me assessing you. Now, you as a, per as a prospective patient would be assessing whether or not you feel comfortable in my office, you feel comfortable in a very short period of time talking to me, you like the kinds of questions that I'm asking, you appreciate some of the observations that I might be making, and you can foresee the possibility of at some point feeling safe talking to me. And I, I have to say it like that because safety is one of those things that takes time to develop. It's not something that happens immediately. And in fact, if, if someone coming to my office in one or two sessions says to me, I feel really safe with you, I'd be very skeptical about that because it's, again, not something that one can feel immediately. It, it just takes time as you get to know somebody to develop that feeling. So in the way that I, I described it a moment ago, it's something that you would have to imagine based on first impressions, whether or not I seem like someone safe to talk to. 
Additionally, I will be assessing you. I will be assessing the struggles that you're describing to me um, and whether or not they fall in the realm of what I feel I could be helpful with, what is under the rubric of my expertise, whether or not I feel comfortable sitting in my office with you, whether or not I feel that based on what you're describing to me that this could be a workable relationship. And if for some reason I find that I am not somebody who I think could be of the best help to you, we would talk about that and I would then refer you to somebody who I think would be more suitable for the kinds of concerns that you are coming to therapy with. But let's just assume that we agree that we're going to work together. One of the questions that I often get at the very beginning of treatment is how long is this going to take? And I really don't know how to answer that question. I never know how to answer that question. I think that it's a very individualized experience. I work from, as do I would say the majority of psychoanalytic psychotherapists, I work from a long-term treatment model. I believe in long-term treatment and that's a pretty arbitrary descriptor. I feel that the longer therapist and patient work together, the more space there is for safety to develop, the more room there is for somebody to be able to open up to areas of themselves that they before had not spoken about, had not known about, and gives them the chance to get acquainted with these parts of themselves. And the more time allows for a deeper intimacy to develop between patient and therapist, which also reciprocally relates to the development of safety. One is not jailed into staying in therapy. Uh, you have your own power, you have your own say, it is your decision whether or not to continue therapy. And one of the things that I strongly encourage when someone asks me this question is that if a change is being entertained, either wanting to end therapy, wanting to increase frequency of sessions, decrease frequency of sessions, that we have an opportunity to talk about it. Because most of the time when changes are made in a person's life, they're made, they're not discussed. And so much can be gotten by being able to have a chance to talk about the shifts and moves that you wanna make in your life without just acting upon them. So that's my best answer to how long it will take. At the beginning of treatment, 
we'll be talking about, I'll be asking lots of questions about your history, your family history, your therapeutic history, meaning whether or not you've been in therapy before and how that went and what worked, what didn't work, how come you're no longer seeking out treatment with that particular therapist, how come you're trying to go in a different direction with a new therapist. I would want to know your social history, your educational history, your history of abuse if one exists and that could be sexual, physical, or emotional abuse. Also, is there any history of alcohol or drug abuse for yourself or for family members? And if there are other areas in your history that might be relevant or might come to mind, that would be encouraged to talk about as well. And this allows me to get a picture of your past. It also allows you to get a picture of your past. And it's an important stage in the beginning of therapy so that we can start developing an understanding of how your past might be related to what's going on with you presently. We're also going to be exploring how you see yourself, how you feel about yourself, why that might be, what contributes to those self-perspectives, and all of this is done in a non-judgmental space. And that can be very difficult to understand because as human beings we are judgmental in the way we experience things that are told to us, things that we witness, things that we hear about. But in the space of my office and in the space of I would say all of my colleagues offices there is no judgment. It's it's just a neutral and a compassionate space of understanding where the listening is driven by interest, curiosity, and empathy. And that opens a space in a very in a very large way so that the person, maybe you, could feel that you can say anything and it's okay and it's welcome that that anything that comes to mind is free reign to be said in my office and I would be asking you to pay attention to what you say as I will be paying attention to what you say and how you say it I will be paying attention to your body language getting to notice whether or not you're making eye contact or not making eye contact. Are you shifting in your seat? Are you twiddling your thumbs? Are you tapping your feet? Do you seem nervous? Do you seem like you're avoiding something? And all of this is, all of these things are excellent contributors to understanding what it is that you might be saying. You might be saying something that consciously seems pretty neutral to you, but if you're not making eye contact while you're saying it, or if you seem very 
nervous and you're in the way that you're sitting, that tells us something very different. And I think of, you know, a very important aspect of the way that I work is trying to open up interest for you in looking at parts of yourself that might be hidden away. Parts that you have actively hidden away, that you have actively shut down, that you have unconsciously hidden away or unconsciously shut down, but might be showing themselves in, in different aspects in your relationships. And these parts or aspects of yourself are really necessary, in my opinion, to talk about, to look at, to come to understand, to notice how they operate, to notice the kinds of things that trigger the repression of some of these things, the kind of automatic utterances of some of these things. And why that's important is so that the more you get to know yourself, the more you get to know the various parts of how you function and the various attributes that add up to you as a person, the more empowered you can feel about how you want to exercise these different parts of who you are, these different aspects of who you are. So for example, say you identify yourself as a really nice person. <coughs> Excuse me. And as a really nice person, you don't get angry. Um, you do not actively show your anger. You do not, you're not a rageful person. You don't yell. You don't act aggressively. And therefore you think that you never show anybody your anger or resentment towards them. But upon observation, you might recognize that while you might not be actively expressing your anger, you might be a more passive-aggressive kind of person. And that means that you are saying things that might not seem overtly rageful, but in their passive way, they very clearly express hostility. And you may not be aware that you're doing this. You might think that you're just, for example, being sarcastic or you're trying to make a joke, but the person to whom you are expressing this passive aggressivity will definitely feel that kind of hostility. And these are the kinds of things that would be vital for you to know about yourself. Because in those situations, you might feel really surprised if somebody reacts negatively to what you're saying, because you who see yourself as nice and not somebody who expresses aggression would not understand why someone might be having such an angry reaction to something that you've just done or said. And by knowing this part of yourself, you have a better chance of being able to more actively express your anger. So it's a matter of choice and something that you are in control of and something that you might be prepared 
for a response to that in the example I just gave the passive-aggressive person would not be prepared and would definitely be caught off guard. So it can be incredibly empowering to be able to recognize and shake hands with that part of yourself and all parts of yourself because otherwise you're going to be just a reacting person and typically that will be happening in situations that are not of choice but are of reactivity and compulsivity and completely without thought and by knowing all these parts you can decide and you can be thoughtful about keeping those things to yourself that's also an option besides finding ways to consciously and thoughtfully express these parts and it allows you to feel more in charge of yourself and it gives you and whoever else might be doing this a feeling of grounding and a feeling of strength in yourself and it allows you to see yourself both as a more complete person and as someone who feels like they are in control and in charge of what they're doing in their lives. So another thing that I wanted to emphasize is that at the beginning of treatment what I do is very much informed by and very old and she has she passed away many many years ago um, Karen Hoare and I by her theories I studied her theories when I was doing my postgraduate studies and I particularly like the way she suggested to begin treatment and what it what it details is focusing on what someone might be doing that would be seen as quote constructive to be able to deal with whatever kind of struggle they're coming into treatment for and to try to find a way to build upon that at the outset of treatment and to try to find a way to strengthen that versus focusing on what they're not doing correctly and focusing on what is destructive about the way they're managing which tended to be a strategy of Freud's. Karen Horn, I was a student of Freud's and she she embarked on her own at a later point in time and she developed her own theory and her own way of practice. And this particular way of practicing by starting treatment, by looking at what's positive, has many benefits. One of which, it helps a person feel like they're not doing everything wrong which is often how a person might feel when they're starting treatment but letting them know that they're actually doing something good and something right and it also allows for what we call a therapeutic alliance which is the connection between the therapist and the patient to develop and in order for all the things that I described moments ago that can happen in psychoanalytic psychotherapy a therapeutic alliance is necessary 
to provide the groundwork for all of those things to be able to emerge and all of the space to do that kind of work to be possible. And if that alliance is not there, or if it's shaky, then the therapeutic space in a therapist's office, my office, will not feel safe enough to address the things that are scary and feel dangerous to discuss. So with that, I think I'm going to close. And of course, there's, there's so much more and there's so many more details. And it's, it's very difficult to give, you know, very kind of general ideas about what happens because every individual is different. But these are some of the basic ideas of how things might progress and what kinds of areas might be focused upon when working with me. And I can definitely say that it is much more expansive in actuality than what I just described. And I say that because with each individual person with whom I work, things get more broadly discussed and the work becomes much deeper and much more Uh, let me see what's a good word for this much more uh, detailed probably a better word than that but much more detailed and much more illuminating about that particular person which generalities are not the best way to describe So, at this conclusion of my first podcast episode, I want to thank you so much for your time and for your attention. I hope that you leave this episode feeling like you learned something, feeling like you have some answers provided about what psychoanalytic psychotherapy is. And if you have any comments or feedback that you'd like to provide me or any questions, I do believe that on my website where the podcast page is, there is an area where you can leave comments. If for some reason I am wrong about that, then by all means, email me or give me a call if you'd like to have a short conversation or if you'd like to arrange an appointment to come in I would be most happy to hear of your feedback additionally if you have any ideas about what you might want me to talk about down the line in future podcasts I welcome all of your suggestions in advance I can't necessarily promise that I would get to all of them but I, I certainly would love to hear your thoughts and any ideas that you might have that you would find useful for me to discuss and you think other people would find useful to hear about. So I thank you again and I look forward to our next episode together. Take care.